Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And we're back to keep it with Ira and Lewis. I was going to say, what's what's this dynamic like? Are we comfortable now that it's really just the two of us? No one's ever heard that before. No, I know. This is a brand new concept <laughs> to them. Wait, Ira and Lewis just speaking? Will they reference a lot of things from the late 1990s? <laughs> uh, wow, what an episode um, to start off on, right? We get rid of our woman. Yes, and lo and behold, yeah. <laughs> Skoda said, now's our chance. Yeah, Aida's gone. Aida's gone. I don't even mean to make <laughs> rough jokes about this, but yes. Uh, yeah, we'll leave that to hysteria, because I don't. none of my jokes about women are funny. I have to say, I really love that specifically on this network, there are so many podcasts that have to take the brunt of, one, speaking seriously about things, but two, kind of having to make jokes about really serious things, whereas we just make jokes about, um, oh, can you believe Sean Mendes dressed like Gaston? Like, that's all we have to do. <laughs> and then there's the show that has to make jokes about everything. Love it or leave it. All right. Well, he's my favorite stand-up, as you know. So that's his job. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm excited, you know, for our new, whatever this is, era. Yep. Uh, uh, I, it's like the moment in Destiny's Child before they hire, like, uh, Michelle. Though we're just going to live in that era. <laughs> I do not mean to compare Aida to Farrah Franklin, by the way. I did not mean to do that. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of, like, trios that became duos. Yeah, does that exist? Uh, well, there, there was a time when uh, the Dixie Chicks, the two sisters, Marty McGuire and Emily Robeson, released an album called Courtyard Hounds, and I did listen to it twice. Uh, I don't know if that excites you in any way. Absolutely does not. <laughs> um, maybe we're just maybe we're just Chip and Dale. Oh, Rescue Rangers, though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I think I'm probably Chip. Did, who's wearing the Hawaiian shirt in that scenario? That's Chip. Okay. Yeah. Dale I is can't... the more Indiana Jonesy serious yeah. one. Well, let's talk about who can wear patterns. That's you. So, yes. <laughs> whereas I'm likelier to do a more solid, rugged approach, I think. You know, I think I treat mm -hmm. my own life like I'm Tomb Raider. My life's like a one-player game. This is code for I don't really date. <laughs> I also think that uh, Dale would be a good um, Halloween costume for you to mix into your repertoire of three. Yeah, I have to tell you, I suck at Halloween, so I will take any recommendations. Last year, I nailed it with Guile from Street Fighter, but that was the first time I really ever took a swing. Mm -hmm. Because uh, you could buy it all on Amazon within 48 hours, like green tank top, army pants, and but dog tag. It was really simple to contrive. And then I think people were shocked that you didn't go as Kylie Minogue from Street Fighter. Well, 
I do appreciate that role. Well, actually, it's a similar costume, really. Uh, it would be like a, a blue tank top or something. But obviously, that's yet to come. And also, the problem, the problem with Street Fighter is a lot of the time, if you're picking that as a Halloween costume, actually, you're wading into cultural appropriation somewhat seriously. So those are two characters where it would be fine. That's fair. Street Fighter is a lot of different cultures that I do not think are maybe properly represented. <laughs> are by you Capcom? Saying, yeah, right. Yeah, I, I don't think there was like an inclusion officer making sure everything was running according to you know protocol. There's a lot of exoticism. There's a lot of Orientalism. There's a lot of weird representations of like everyone from Africa has like stretchy arms and big oh, no. hoop earrings. I was going to say he's that he's from India, Dalsam, and the the juxtaposition of yoga with I'm setting people on fire, I don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm going to read up on that Encyclopedia Britannica article, but I don't think those two things go together. I think my actual favorite part of Street Fighter games is the background characters. Who like who have two two movements that they shift back and forth from, and they're just in the background cheering um, whenever any fights happening. But then there's all there's, there's usually just a lot of like women with big breasts. Oh a yeah, lot of, uh -huh. like, a lot of like horny men like grabbing at them too. <laughs> no, no, it's it, you're exactly right. They kind of look like the inflatable things you see at a car dealership and they're like waving their arms and it's just, can you imagine just looking at a fight on the street which is what this <laughs> game is about fighting on the street and just waving in the distance i've noticed that that is one of your favorite cultural references by the way like how many car dealerships do you drive by every day i'm i'm from the unglamorous midwest so let me tell you the answer is many <laughs> and i used to live right by the brand boulevard of cars in glendale so it's ingrained mm. All right. Well, speaking of glamour, we're going to talk about the Met Gala this week, which I, I was paying attention and enjoying it. And then it just fell right the fuck off, which I I can't remember in recent. Well, I guess it's like the Oscars. You know, mm -hmm. it was just it was going. It was going. Everything and was going. Will according Smith to right. <laughs> stormed into the Supreme Court. And slapped, and slapped us back 50 rights. years. Yeah, yeah right. slapped abortion rights away. Um, we will be talking about the Met Gala, um, despite the insistence from, you know, um, self-important people online who think that we should only ever be talking about one thing at all times. That was incredibly annoying. Again, did anybody say this about any sporting event, that all the people should, quote-unquote, leave the arena and go to D.C. or whatever people were saying? It's this... There's this like resting shame about I, honestly famous women enjoying themselves, and that been then people saying, well, they they should stop what they're doing and leave. It's like you're not saying this about literally any other thing. I don't know why you're doing this, but for some the reason you want these people to feel bad about themselves. The restless shame, though, is also on the part of the person talking as well. Though. Yes, I feel right. like people also feel ashamed of themselves for caring about something that they consider is stupid. And so they have to reflexively sort of point out that they're not being stupid by showing that, hey, I care about this thing that just happened, which obviously, you know, um, there was a leak from SCOTUS that um, they are making a decision to, you know, sort of get rid of Roe v. Wade. A thing that also will not be going into effect until around June. It's only a draft, but, you know, it's sort of like ground zero here uh, for all of our rights being taken away. But 
there is something about the fact that this news dropped in the middle of the night because it was a leak. And right. so no one was anticipating this. So when people are getting mad that the Met Gala is trending higher than, um, you know, this SCOTUS leak, do you know how internet algorithms work? Something that just came out a second ago is not going to be trending higher and have more posts than something that people have been talking about all day. Right. And, and all week, right? You know, like yeah. leading up to the Met Gala. Um, yes, also... Who even believes what they see on a trending bar? I don't know about you. When I look at, well, well, I'm on Twitter, but like, it'll be like, guess what's trending? Kate Blanchett. I'm like, no, it's not. You just know I want to talk about that. (laughs) They just throw up names now. My favorite topic, Roe v. Wade, is trending. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The girls are lit. So, yeah, we're going to discuss the Met Gala this week. We're also going to talk about. Gay shit from our youth, um, inspired by the new Netflix series Heartstopper, which uh-huh. is sort of like brought up, I guess, feelings of, um, you know, gayness that we've had from when we were kids. You know, well, we we're going to talk about um, the new Real World New Orleans reboot um, with one of our iconic gay heroes, Danny. And um, there's this whole Amber Crombie documentary out white hot on netflix as well which also had me thinking about like being gay in the midwest uh in the late 90s early 2000s so a whole um childhood trauma episode yeah frost your tips put on those puka shells let's roll Uh, and if that's not enough, we are joined by the very delightful amber ruffin to talk about what it's like writing for a late night show hosting your own late night show uh, and also writing the book for a Broadway musical based on some like it hot. Is that not mind blowing of all the leaps this person could take? She like jumped right to Tony front runner. All right. We'll be right back with more. Keep it. Check out Crooked's new show, Hot Take. On the latest episode, hosts Mary Anais Hegler and Amy Westervelt sit down with climate reporter Kate Aronoff to talk about what the heck nationalization means and how it may hold the key to saving the planet from global destruction. New episodes of Hot Take drop every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. Monday night, the Metropolitan Museum of Art hosted the Met Gala, the annual fundraising event where no one knows how to Google what a theme means. <laughs> I'm going to say, also, so it's it was mainly American designers was like the umbrella theme, but Gilded mm-hmm. Age was the sort of theme within the theme. And guys, we, we had a whole television series you could have referenced. It's right there in the title. It says Gilded. Yeah. Uh, part two of In America, an anthology of fashion. The theme was Gilded Glamour and... I don't know. I don't know. I've, first of all, um, this was a wild ride. It was a wild ride of taking in like bad costumes uh, and then some people who like understood the assignment and then also the SCOTUS leak happening at the exact right. same time. You know, it, it was very disorienting for me because I'm in Amsterdam right now. Um, and, you know, so I'm like 
I couldn't I couldn't sleep really. So I was like, I'd fall, I went to sleep early while like the Met Gala stuff was still happening, and then I'm waking up and getting all of this news, and it's like 4 a.m. here, and my my mind is just like fried. You're just like Vincent Van Gogh. You're in Amsterdam, <laughs> and your mind's a blur, and uh, it felt like a worried. fever dream. I was like, what the fuck is happening? Well, it was indeed a starry night. Oh my god, I need to stop. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm gonna cut your ear off, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's the thing about the Met Gala, um, which which happens every year. There's always the conversation that you know this is a parade of capitalism, and it's rich people, um, you know, who don't care about the rest of the world, etc. Um, and you know that that was highlighted, you know, I guess with the events of. Um, the SCOTUS leak, but also the juxtaposition of them just because they were happening on the same night um, literally makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, like one doesn't inform the other. And you were right when you pointed out that like when something like like there's always there's always a capitalistic event happening in America, which is a capitalist nation. So anything and everything could be happening, you know, but I guarantee when this draft was leaked, you know, it had nothing to do with um SCOTUS getting together and being like, well, let me tell you something. America's going to be distracted by the fashions tonight. <laughs> so let's let's draft this memo. What probably happened is it was a Monday. Right. And people are going to work <laughs> on Monday. Right, right, right. I know the internet generally hates Mondays. It has this whole sort of like Garfield-esque thing where they're like, oh, Monday. Don't talk to me about work. I'm ignoring emails. But some people do go to work on Monday. And sometimes people go to work to take away our rights on Monday. Do you think the Met Gala should move to Sunday for this reason? Because we don't want to inter intersect with abortion news ever again. And it only occurs on a Monday. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe so. The first Sunday in May has sort of a ring to it. Yeah, cute. It's very Kentucky Derby. Um, now... Okay, let's get into the people who arrive. Uh, you know who I am so thankful always comes? Because, in, in fact, I think she's the, the def definitive Mechiela celebrity. Rihanna? Sarah Jessica Parker. Rihanna? Uh, she obviously wasn't there because she's, you know, about to give birth in Barbados. Right. <laughs> uh, no, Rihanna, she's like a, you know, she, she's like the Olympics. She, she comes every few years or so, and then... You you can't you can't always expect her, but Sarah Jessica Parker, she came in this sort of I'll call it Harlequin looking, uh, uh, me describing fashion is by the way lol, uh, this Harlequin looking <laughs> dress that actually evokes the Gilded Age. She it was Christopher John Rogers. I love this look on her. It is a far cry from that one year she came with like a fucking birdcage on her head. Right, but also it's like she knows the level you're supposed to bring in terms of grandeur because i feel like too many celebrities go for sleek or like um I, I there's no other way to put it like normal like normal glamour and like the mechiela is supposed to be a little bit of a step outside of reality and i think that sarah jessica parker is the one who definitively always goes for it and also she has the vocabulary she probably knows more about fashion than all the other celebrities put together mm -hmm. um i'm just gonna get this out of the way my favorite look of the night with Sebastian Stan and Valentino. No, wait. Your favorite look of the night? I you am, would wear I that. cannot get... I know I can <laughs> Lewis, thank you. 
Okay. Um, I just, it's just, it's so. First of all, it's such a good look on him. He this is an all so pink outfit. Yeah. It's very like uh, just south of bubblegum pink. I would call it like a bright magenta. He, he's looking like bubblegum pink. He's he looks like he looks like a Batman villain. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's something just so sexy about it, and I like, I like that it's. It just he looks great, you know. It's not on theme, but it feels like it's in the spirit of the theme. If that makes sense, it's not just him wearing a pink suit, you know. Like it feels opulent. Um, like the anyway, I like it. I can't get it out of my head. But also, as I said, I was on Xanax, taking all of these looks in while also taking in the the hell of American politics. So forgive Got me it. if this was my favorite look. I, I would, see. I would, I would maybe give it to Blake Lively, but I feel like everyone is overhyping that dress. I feel like Blake Lively, who was a co-chair of the event and wore this sort of, um, literally gilded, like a brownish, greenish, huge uh, gown with, with his sort of pictures all over it. Lovely and huge, but also expected and and ultimately just charming. I wasn't getting rad from that dress, which is sort of what I like. Out uh, and it was meant to evoke the Statue of Liberty and how it was, you know, built with copper and then has that greenish tint over time, etc. Um, mm-hmm. Great, but not quite rock and roll. And I like that little X factor of something naughty going on. Nothing was really naughty about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only thing really naughty about Blake is that she got married on a plantation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think, yes, that's true. And then I have to give it up to Ryan Reynolds for kind of just standing there. I mean, he was not commanding attention in any way. And I, I think among straight men, nobody likes attention more. <laughs> uh, he's, got wanna... the, he's got like vaudeville eyes. Like, I'm ready to be funny. So you had S- Sebastian Stan in all pink. And yet you've said nothing about Glenn Close wearing the same color, sweeping in. You know what? Is it because you're a sexist? It is actually. Got it. it. Is. You know, unfortunately, I'm just I'm I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a closer. <laughs> that was Kira Sedgwick, but okay. <laughs> I was trying to come up you with are damages. Or, That's what you to, are. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to come up with a name um for um Glenn Close fans, but I guess I should go call my mother and ask her for a different one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm having a hillbilly allergy for your taste. I have to say, um, I you know what? I think Glenn looks great. I think Glenn is sort of in a class of her own right now. We're just like Glenn is doing Glenn, you know? Yes. Also, the her hair looks fabulous. She has a, a very sleek, what we once upon a time would have called a Susan Powder look. You can Google that. But uh, uh, I, I thought there were not very many celebrities of. Glenn's ilk, like Christine Baranski showed up for the first time. That was cool. And she swanned in in her, I own 51% of this company garb, which as she should. But there weren't many, like no, Ariana DeBose was there, but not much in the, in, the, in the range of Oscar winners, I didn't think showed up this time. Honestly, the caliber of celebrities was a little flat for me. I mean, everything lately has been giving like B-string celebrities, unfortunately. Like not, like, you know, it's like Coachella, um, the attendees, you know, it's like the um, Oscars this year. It's just we're, we're not getting we're not getting the A-listers. Where are yeah. they? I'm, like, where was Where's someone J-Lo? like for a, planning her wedding? J-Lo. Where's someone like Cher? You know, like those kind of people. 
Um, I know where Madonna was. She was performing with Maluma, and we actually can't talk about that because I can't bring myself to watch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maluma directing her around on stage. Guys, don't even Google it. You know what? She loves surprise performances on stages where she terrorizes a young male rapper. That's true. Uh, I know you're referencing Drake right now. <laughs> um, if we, listen, let's, let's just get this out of the way and talk about um, Kim Kardashian. Great. And this um, Marilyn Monroe look that everyone won't stop talking about. First of all, I want to say... Lee Pete at home. <laughs> I'm I, like, listen, I'm I'm fine with her getting dicked down by him. Okay. Yeah. Like you should be able to do that, baby. You're 41. Enjoy it. But she looks like she is chaperoning him every time he's on the red carpet. Like, what's going on? Like his just like his suit and glasses look. I'm like, that's not gonna become a thing. We're not doing right. this. We're no, not doing I, this. And you are 41 years old, also giving interviews about how basically you starved yourself for three weeks to fit into this damn dress. I was sort of surprised to hear that until I saw her. And honestly, I don't think I even recognized it was Kim Kardashian for a second. To me, I thought it was J-Lo. Like, she looks mm. much different. Also, I have to say, so I, historically, I like that she's referencing the Marilyn Monroe dress because, I don't know, it's a little bit witty. You know, it is, it's, it's Americana. People can't stop bringing up Marilyn Monroe. But it's not the first reference you think of when you think of Marilyn Monroe. She didn't come down in the gentleman perform blonde's dress or anything like that. That said, it's a remarkable dress for the time, but on the Met Gala red carpet, I didn't think it was particularly stunning and, in fact, sort of was flat to me. Also, it's from 1962. Right. Girl, like, the, the, Gilded, the Gilded Age didn't last 300 years. <laughs> It's, My favorite is, era in American history is 1858 to now. See, I like when people, like, listen, this is going to be weird coming off of, like, the Sebastian Stan thing, but, like, I like when people aren't on theme and do something interesting. What I actually dislike is when someone decides, like, I'm going to make a historical reference that actually has nothing to do with the, the historic moment that we're actually celebrating. You know, no. I'm like, you can wear this honestly anywhere and to a bigger moment and i get that it's the bet gala and you want all cameras on you but you're kim kardashian all cameras are on you if you go to sit go <laughs> right i think maybe I, I her hair choice i think also made it made less of an impact didn't even give I, me didn't even give us the full maryland like, right. like what the fuck it's lazy right uh, it's lazy, uh, and, except we, for the, and, then, and then it's and then like I don't know. I still can't get over the whole like not to be Jamila Jamil here, but like giving an interview about how like you just like starved yourself for three weeks to fit into this dress. I'm like, girl, you're at home raising kids like this, and like what like this is basically just like her selling those lollipops again. And then yeah, she changed into a more comfortable replica after she walked the carpet. So I'm like, it's a scam. It's a scam, right. and Jamila was right. Because <laughs> the dress is like gossamer thin and is currently owned, actually, by Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Orlando, which I, if, if you're going to go to a Ripley's Believe It or Not, you must go to the Orlando location, I have to say. Um, mm. Well, speaking um, of Ripley's Believe It or Not, Sean Mendez. Um, <laughs> I believe it. It's what he always does. You know what? He looks good. No, he's he's obviously gorgeous and the epitome of an... Abercrombie type, which we'll get into momentarily. But uh, honestly, 
he, so he dressed in a sort of, um, I, I would call it like a dandy coat, like a s- slightly military vibe. But the only kind of uh, opulent part of it were that there are big gold buttons and there's a red sleeve, uh, mm-hmm. which is as much as he can handle, I think. He looks like Gaston. Yeah, he looks like Gaston, right. Um, here's the thing. I agree with Tom and Lorenzo. I think they called it mad that it's basically just sort of like aspirational fashion, which is like a lot of guys, like, which gets into the Amber Carby thing, right? Like, it, the suit looks like, honestly, like, I think you would look good in a suit. Oh, it's not, it's, oh. Not, it's it, I mean, you know, it's not like you you rarely step over into, you know, what I would call fashion. Um, uh, move it along. I've, Go ahead. You know, I've, I've, I've never really seen you turn what I would call a look. Um, you know, I've never really been impressed. But okay. I would say. <laughs> Thank you for writing that poem about how I dress. Go ahead. Uh, but I think that you would look good in this, you know. But, but then that also brings you the question of like if it's the Met Gala and if it's a dress, an outfit where it's like. Oh, this looks really great. Like, I let me go and find like a version of this. Like, are you really delivering? Right. I just think it's sort of in line with Sean Mendez going with pleasing looks and never interesting look. Like, he really has a problem coming up with interesting Mu- musically. Uh, anything he says, like he's he's. I, I saw I, maybe on the Who Weekly message board they casually refer to him as Yawn Mendez, and I'm sorry it's a laugh <laughs> every time. Even. Even his like little notes app screed was uh, so uninteresting. I was like, "Sis, what are you talking about?" <laughs> oh yeah, I was, I, I was like, "I was like, this is like a, it was like this is a bad journal entry." I was like, "I don't even get what you're saying." Ooh, what wait, are you talking about? So recently, he posted something on notes app about what was it? He was like feeling alienated or something. Just about feeling sad. Oh, okay. Which oh, and he has like the noted anxiety problem or something. So okay, fine, go ahead and do that, but. It did, his anxiety did not elevate his look, I have to say. I wish he were even a little bit more anxious and gave us more. Yeah, join the Zanny family, baby. I have anxiety, too, <laughs> and I love popping a Zan. Okay? I pop one before I do this show. This pop is your second time flights. today. You've re- Yeah, you have, you're a drug addict. Okay, now I know. <laughs> I will, la- last thing about his fashion and you. Uh, I actually really love his hair, and I think you should start doing that. My, yeah, like my hair runs a little... Tussle, full- yeah. Texture and my hair meet every couple years, but I will do my best to achieve that. <laughs> I really liked model and First Nation activist um, Kwana Chasing Horse, by the way, because like she paid tribute to, um, you know, sort of like indigenous people during that era. Oh, no. When, when people, uh, Cynthia Arrivo did that too, didn't she? Mm-hmm. she yeah, she, looking great in Louis Vuitton. Also, I forget that when Cynthia Arrivo speaks, it is arresting. Like you cling onto the wall and just listen to the like butteriness of her incredible just speaking instrument as opposed to just her tremendous singing voice um some other people i thought looked great like i thought jenny sabrava looked great i thought emma corin looked great um venus williams looked like she would look great in a boardroom i was gonna say venus williams dressed like whoopi goldberg in soap dish <laughs> I like this is barely a reference to anything other than looking good in 1991. She's the baddest bitch at the Women in Music Business Conference. <laughs> so, Betsy so Pace, shout Sharon out to and I'm her. a bitch. Yeah. Shout out to her. Um, I think everyone is in agreement on what the absolute worst look at the Met Gala was. Oh, it's got to be 
Camila Cabello? Camila Cabello. What the fuck was she wearing? It was. She, I mean, you can see it in her eyes. You can see it in her eyes. She knows. And I am so, I am so upset by this because let me tell you something. Her new album, Familia, is actually really fucking great. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised by that. I've historically enjoyed her music. Yeah, the dress looks like everybody made the same joke. It looks like an is it cake funfetti thing. It was like it has this ruffle that was patched with what I'm going to call fruity pebble specs, and it just looks super cheap. It looked like a Project Runway uh, Gristidi's challenge where she took a, a roll of like uh, candy dots and turned it into a dress. She looks like the Terminator that came back. Uh, from the far, far future to tell Dippin' Dots yes. about their future. <laughs> She's a Dippin' Dot Terminator, is what she is. My favorite thing about Dippin' Dots is that they always have the potential to be right. It still could be the ice cream of the future. We're not there yet. <laughs> you know who did look amazing and was wearing, I think, the designer of the night? Michelle Yeoh, our friend, wearing that mint green uh, Prabal Garung dress and mm. i believe also mindy kaling wore that uh just gorgeous and also i love when somebody is wearing a color that nobody else is well wearing. michelle yos was gorgeous yeah oh yeah <laughs> mindy's was giving you know fine golden globes gown it looks like a golden globes gown actually you know what i need mindy kaling to hire her, fire her makeup artist and i'm just i'm just gonna put that out there well it matched the there. gown right yeah, yeah. I just, I, I actually, I, I love sis. I, I, I want her to do well. I don't, I don't like the makeup. What's going on here? It's, I've got to say, monochrome. There's a, bad, there's a bad mua. Like, yeah. let, let's, let's get somebody, let's get somebody black on the team. <laughs> I think monochrome in general looks better on men than it does women. Uh, there's a stolidness I, to monochrome that uh, befits masculinity. I believe in the binary. Did I not say that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I only wear makeup that goes by they, them pronouns. So okay, I don't know it. what you're talking about. Um, okay, lastly, they're a mess. Lizzo looked great as well. But you know what? And she brought the flute. Yeah, I've had it. Leave the flute at home. <laughs> that is sort of like I, 2016. Yeah. It's, it was wild that she brought the flute with her because I was like, we still doing the flute. Yeah. It's like if Alanis Morissette <laughs> brought a harmonica wherever she went. It's like, yeah, I remember you played it that one time. Right. You know, it's like if Justin Timberlake brought Chris Kirkpatrick with him everywhere he went. Okay. Like, <laughs> that would be kind of cool. There was a time and a place. <laughs> there was a time and a place. Okay. Let the flute join Celebrity Big Brother and, and go on its way. <laughs> In a seven to two vote, flute, you are eliminated from the Big Brother house. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the flute walking on out <laughs> hugging its friends <laughs> alright uh, when we're back we're joined by the very very wonderful Amber Ruffin Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams Lewis yes when you see Footprints in the sand. That was when I carried you in my barefoot dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to barefoot dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. 
With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. She is a writer on Late Night with Seth Meyers, the host of The Amber Ruffin Show, the best-selling author of You'll Never Believe What Happened to Lacey, Crazy Stories About Racism, and she's doing far too much, uh, and the writer of the upcoming Broadway musical Some Like It Hot. Which, please, what? <laughs> please welcome... Felicia Rashad. No, obviously it's Amber <laughs> Ruffin. It's Amber. Imagine if I was like the host of the Amber Ruffin show, and then it's just like <laughs> Kiki Palmer. <Yeah. laughs> Felicia Rashad. Eternally grateful to be be a thrill. Um, there is so much that we can talk to you about, and will talk to you about. Um, but first. We're going to get right into Some Like It Hot, a musical that you are working on because, first of all, I never knew I needed this in my life, and now I really need it in my life, now that I know about it. Um, And you're writing it with Matthew Lopez, who wrote The Inheritance. So tell us about how you even got involved with this project and what's it like working with, you know, Matthew, who just came off of writing a 20 hour queer epic that was on <laughs> Broadway and the West End. Yeah. I mean, it was the, the most fun. I, I just couldn't believe it. Like usually we write little jokes and maybe Seth Myers will say them. Sometimes it's like some celebrity somewhere. And that's that's the, the the biggest deal that's gonna happen to you. But man, you write all these little things and like professional Broadway actors say them, and it's different. <laughs> it's something different. Um, yeah, it was neat to learn how to write for like a giant stage. Cause even like a 300 seat theater is not a Broadway theater. Like it's mm-hmm. different. Um, so every little bit of writing you've done it it will be called upon (laughs) you know to help you figure out how to fill a broadway theater it's very cool but yeah matthew lopez and casey nikoloff the man who directed a million things on broadway including book of mormon and aladdin and Mm -hmm. the team of 
music writers who wrote among a million other things, hairspray um, mm. are doing the music. So they all called them. We're like, do you want to help us write this show? And I said, yes, but they had already written quite a bit of it. You know, that's the journey of a musical is they rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And this so team, we, iconic, team. by the way, yeah. I mean, basically they called, basically they called you up and were like, Hey, would you like to win a Tony? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, whatever you need, I'll do it. I love it. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's very cool. It's cool. So, I mean, Let's talk about Some Like It Hot, just period. First of all, I feel like in my life, there's been a general... I've been seeing a lot more Marilyn remembrance material, namely about just what a brilliant comic performer she was. But that movie, so much of it holds up. The the, the speed of it, the uh, the jokes are so good. So what? how will this show uh, call to mind that movie, or how will it be completely different from that movie? Um. Yeah, we... It'll be completely different in that of the five main characters, one is white. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's a big change. Um, And also, we just didn't want it to be so problematic. So we had to shake all the dirt off it, which was you know, just an excellent exercise in writing. It's like this show that really, you know, everyone over, I'm going to say 60, 70, is like, this is the funniest movie of all time. And you're like, well, yeah, but maybe it's the funniest movie of your time and today. <laughs> so, yeah, we went through some um, work to fix it. And, uh, you know, just, I guess I shouldn't say fix, but I definitely super will now a third time fix. Um, we, we had to make sure everyone who came to see it could have a good time. And now I can 100% say when you come and see it, you will have a good time and you won't feel like we're ragging on you, which was my only goal. Some Like It Hot is in my favorite genre of films, by the way, um, people disguising themselves to escape the mob. Right. Uh, <laughs> just like Sister Act, uh, what, right. Connie and Carla. <laughs> uh, um, and yeah, I mean, because, you know, the director of it, um, Casey, um, the, the Drowsy Chaperone is like one of my faves, you know? Oh, so I yes. imagine you're updating the jokes to sort of, I imagine the, the musical has to be self-referential, you yeah. know? Like you can't do a musical from the 50s without sort of acknowledging that like the concept and like the jokes and everything are like you know a bit dated and then making fun of them um do you enjoy do you enjoy that kind of comedy you know did you find that you were flexing a different comedy muscle than like what you do on your own show which is already different than what you know the skills you use on seth meyers yes it is all a a different type of comedy and it took some getting used to like a mug but it is so i don't want to say broad but like physically broad like Mm -hmm. the 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 hook is you're writing comedy but for a cartoon that's probably the closest i could Mm -hmm. get like once my mind Mm -hmm. was like this is 
cartoonish. We we want cartoon laughs. It was a lot faster, easier to do. Speaking of comedy muscles, I'm curious what the difference for you is between writing material for Seth Meyers and writing material for your own show. Because it feels like to be a correspondent and then also the main act feels like you're necessarily going to have just a different demographic audience. And do you feel that when you're writing material for both shows? And is it is is it is one tougher than the other, for example? Um, I used to always say, no, it's the same. And we, you know, I fucking sit down on Sunday and I write, 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 and whatever goes, goes, and I don't give a rip. But yesterday I wrote, 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 and I came up with this thing. And I was like, I don't think I could do this on late night. And it was like something like um, uh, the FDA is going to ban menthol cigarettes, which brings us to a segment called, is this racist? <laughs> 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 um, I don't, uh, uh, but then like, if I do that on the Amber Ruffin show, it's fine. But if I do that on Seth's show, it's just a little, like, he, he, it doesn't feel great for white people to be like, ah, those black people in their menthols. I can't get enough. You know, that feels gross. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't, I wrote it and I was like, oh, this is fine. And then when I said it out loud, I was like, oh yeah, we can't. I don't know that that's the right thing to be doing. So, so yes, I finally found it. Yes. There's definitely a difference there because the difference is just like you said, where were you a while ago? The difference is who is the audience. And that's something I was never keeping in mind because I'm bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's so exciting, too, to see you having your own show, you know, where you, you know, get to be a black woman in late night, you know, like, I mean, what's it what's it been like, I guess, sort of for years working and being in Seth's voice um, for so long. I mean, what was what was it like oh, developing your comedy muscles over the years um, on that show? And what maybe have you sort of had to, I don't want to say unlearn, but like something where you're like, oh, okay, I don't have to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, when I started Seth's show, I just was like, man, shut up. Don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> Try to keep it together. But uh, then I quickly found out that there were no rules. And like, I, I, yeah, I don't know how to say this. You could, you know how when you are black in a workplace, mm-hmm. that you have your own set of rules and then everyone else has their own set of rules. The second I realized, I don't think these people know black folks are supposed to have their own set of rules. They, I, I, you know, and then we're all like fucking digging around so bad, like leaving, go have a steak in the middle of the day and margarita come back and be like, well, we are fucking around. There were no rules. And they're just like, haha, you guys are fun. And we were just allowed to do whatever we wanted as long as we came up with fun, you know, sketches and fun bits. And it was all like, you know, camaraderie and, you know, uh, uh, party time. And then, you know, once I realized, oh, I can also be acting like these people. I thought, I wonder if this extends to what I can do on the show. And I'll be damned. It certainly does. <laughs> 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 like, hey, these are haircuts I hate. 
<laughs> there. People are like, yeah, 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 well, yeah. What are you gonna do? I, and I couldn't believe that I got the latitude I got. And then I just started pushing it and pushing it. And um, I'm still pushing it. But yeah, for my show, I had to uh, realize like on Seth's show, he's the straight man and I'm a lunatic. And then on my show, it's harder to be the lunatic. So I just ended up doing what Seth does and having my writers on to be silly sweethearts. And it works and it's funner that way. Um, but yeah, I didn't know that. I thought, oh, my own show. Now I'm the king of the idiots. But you can't really do it like that. If someone else has <laughs> to be your doofus. It's fun. Now, I read this and I was shocked not to know it from the time I knew who you were. You were the first black woman to be a late night comedy writer. Is that correct? The, all of the things you have to say in order to make that true. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like the first black female writer on a late night network talk show. Uh, network. Yes. There we, okay. True, yeah. But uh-huh. I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I don't know if that's true. I, I do think about a show like Letterman. And I'm like, oh yeah, maybe there wasn't a black woman on that show. Now that now that yeah. you mention it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm sure Jack A was writing jokes for you know the Johnny Carson show. We just don't know about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Surely Joan Rivers be. for a moment. Yeah, had someone. You know. Um, but I mean, like, were you aware of that at the time when you got hired for the show? Like, no. anything statistically about that? Absolutely not. And then I also didn't even think about it. And then someone wrote that article and people were mm. like, oh, my God. I was like, well, what do you expect? Like, I certainly never was like, I'm going to grow up and do late night. It's never occurred. Never, never. Not even for a minute. Not even while Larsenio Hall was on. I was like, oh, good for this man. I love it. It's a great show. I love it. <laughs> you all look like you're having fun and I enjoy that. But like, it certainly never seemed like an option to me. Did it not seem like an option because it was something where you were like, this just isn't the kind of comedy I like to do? Like you were like, I like improv and this, or was it just like something you didn't think was possible? No, it was something I didn't think is possible. I live late night and I love like, uh, like presentational variety sketch, which Mm. is what I like to do. Like, not like sketch, sketch, like black lady sketch show, or, um, Mm -hmm. I think you should leave sketch, Mm. but like, like, um, Carol Burnett, like we are talking to the audience, you know, I'm laying out my character very early, you know, it's, that's the type of comedy that I enjoy. So like horny. But I think we can call that classic. Yeah. Oh, oh! Thank you for the rebrand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis made the haze code over here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, I have to say, like, you writing this Broadway show is—I mean, I guess the word is inspiring because you just literally—I mean, it seems to me you have just leapt from one com- uh, complete comedy world to another. Do you have a third in mind? Do you have like ambitions still that are outside these bubbles or does that feel, it's crazy that that would feel inconceivable because getting to write a Broadway show already feels inconceivable. (laughs) Yeah. It's all like, I have never sat down and been like, these are my goals. Yeah. 
these are my wants and my wishes and my, you know, I, I certainly was never like, I'm going to end up on TV. Like, even in my mind, I was like, I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to give it a shot because I have to. But even like, that's where the thought stopped was like, I'm going to try it. And then I had all these safety nets and was like, oh, okay, then I'll do the second city cruise ships or I'll go back to boom Chicago or go teach improv in Chicago. And that was how I thought of it. I never thought of the, what if it goes (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. fucking never occurred to me, never occurred to me. And still, and then with every new thing I go, well, it's not going to get crazier than this. And then it does. It does. So I'm not saying shit. I'm not, (laughs) going to say one word and I'm just going to let whatever happens happen because I, I couldn't have guessed it. If I had tried to guess at every point, I would have been wrong. So I'm not saying anything. <laughs> so something like it hot came to was 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 brought to you. If you, if you could think of a movie that you love, like one of your favorite comedies, like what would you want to adapt like what do you think like would really pop on stage thank you and this is what i've always wanted to do i want to do a well first of all i wrote a musical based on the documentary king of kong king of kong Mm. is a documentary where two men vie to become the donkey kong arcade game champion and one is um a pure soul a science teacher who is a doll baby. And then the other guy is almost the devil. (laughs) (laughs) They're just real people fucking loose in the world. And it's the best documentary I've ever seen. It's not even close. And I wrote a um, musical about it with my uh, friend, Lauren Van Curen. And the music was by David Schmoll, who does all my music for my everything. And it, you know, we took it around and it won awards and we did this and that. And then the people who made the documentary saw it and were like, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they can do that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, They were like, the two of you can do this musical every once in a while for fun, but not for money. You can't like drum up a big tour and shit. And I'm like, okay, I won't. but it's only because they want to write a King of Kong musical. I think that's in the works. Mm. But whatever, it'll be the second best one. I guarantee it. <laughs> that thing was the shit. But my <laughs> point is, I wanted to, I think that, well, first of all, that is the best. It's the best. It was a two-woman musical where we played each character. It was just like a quick change um, uh, karaoke musical. It was the best. And then... uh. I, you know, because sometimes you have meetings with studios and they go, what movie do you want to turn into a musical? And the I say whatever I think they want to hear. But the mm-hmm. real answer is over the top. Oh, my Which, God. The arm wrestling movie. The arm wrestling movie. <laughs> yeah. I think that would be the absolute best musical of all time. It's so silly. And I don't think anyone has done like people remake movies. But I think the it would be a good idea to remake a movie that takes itself just as seriously as the movie did when it came out even though 
we now know that that is stupid. Like, that's <laughs> what I want to do. I want to do over the top. <laughs> Those people were like, in life, you got two arms, one for love and one for dealing out venture. I don't even know. I'm making that up. But like, <laughs> they, they say things like that. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, I mean, first of all, that's iconic because it, it gives me like um, Cobra Kai vibes for one. And two, you can't go wrong like making a musical with a based on a movie that had a Giorgio Moroder soundtrack. Oh, please. So, you know, it is, you know, I'm sure it's not one of the most listened to ones of his, <laughs> but over the top, the music did what needed to be done. The music was so beautiful. <laughs> and there is this like this theme that goes throughout the <laughs> goes throughout the movie and every time every time i see it i click on it so we watch it but like the um driving thing the dun 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 oh, but there, mm. i have um it, i've seen the movie so many times that i sing a full silly song to that track but also that's what makes it seemed like it'd make a good musical is mm. that score is unreal. It is completely overpowering. It's nuts. And I love it. It's, but that's how things were in the eighties. It's beautiful. And I'm right. Love no, you throw Kenny, you throw Kenny Loggins on a soundtrack in the eighties and you know, you're done. So I <laughs> know I've I have because of the new Top Gun I've been reacquainted myself with uh, Take My Breath Away recently and like that is I mean it's a wonderful song of course but it really takes you on a sonic journey for a movie that is you know not that deep yeah <laughs> another Giorgio <laughs> Moroder classic yes yeah <laughs> I mean isn't that exactly what Gaga's planning to you know the new right, song yeah. for Maverick it's like it's this epic song and it's like the movie's not that it's Top Gun too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait. Why have you seen this movie a million times? It seems like it, was it just on TV all the time, or what? There was a period of time where it was that and Overboard on TBS oh, every Saturday. Okay. I, and I, I would mean, sit iconic down and movies. Be like, this. Yeah, it's like I love this. this <laughs> TBS airing only movies with Over in the title. <laughs> by the way. <laughs> doing it <laughs> over fridays whatever it was called i don't know yeah. uh, <laughs> uh i mean remake overboard uh into the musical too unless that's happened already i'm pretty shocked i don't think it has it had that movie remake right yeah uh -huh. yeah um i feel like but i also feel like over the top is safe but a movie like overboard you would be like, oh, let's make this into a musical. And then you find out that like they had a run of it in like Cleveland or something in right. 2001. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have, uh, but we are so excited for Some Like It Hot. I have to tell you this yeah. um, because I love, I truly just love a musical like that. I think it's like, you know, like I said, Drowsy Chaperone, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Like I love a musical that's sort of referencing you know, the comedy that was in the original film and it feels like it's doing something fresh with the material and you sound like a perfect person to be doing that, Amber. Yay! It's good, man. It is very good. Oh, I would go, they would, when okay. they started running through it, I was like, oh, shit! You forget, people can do this! Like, <laughs> throwing each other around and shit, I'm like, I, I don't care for this. 
<laughs> I'm so fucking excited to see Christian Borle. You know, I've been, I've yes. seen him. I've seen him in. Uh, I'm obsessed with Little Shop of Horrors, one of my favorite musicals. So I've gone to see different iterations of um, this current run every time there's a new Seymour, uh, and just seeing him, you know, um, as the deranged dentist in that, he's so yeah. good. Yeah. So he's yeah. fantastic, and it's mm-hmm. so cool to be like, hi, hi, Christian, w- would you please say these lines, please? Okay, goodbye. <laughs> I love him so much. It's terrifying. Yeah, he's a stone pro. I mean, he yeah. should just be in every show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here, Amber. Yay! What a pleasure. Thank you so much yeah. for being here. Yay! Thank you for having me. This is fun. And each of you is more perfect than the last. And I love your show. <laughs> thank you we adore you (laughs) the amber ruffin show is streaming on peacock and her book you'll never believe what happened to Lacey: crazy stories about racism is available in bookstores everywhere but maybe not in colleges because i hear it's critical race theory (laughs) (laughs) when we're back lewis and i talk about our teenage gay trauma Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. All right, every faggot online is talking about the Netflix coming-of-age romance series Heartstopper. And you know what? It's good. It's really good. I would say it's cute. Well, it's cute. I do have one big complaint. Which is? That's all you give Olivia Coleman to do? It it is mind-boggling that Olivia Coleman is on this show. The woman has seven lines altogether. I want to be clear, she's nominated for three Oscars, and one of them was yesterday. (laughs) I see Olivia Coleman in this lovely series, which is adapted from a webcomic and graphic novel, about this boy, um, Nick Nelson, who starts to figure out his sexuality and realize that he realize that he is attracted to guys. And that comes when he starts a friendship with um, this boy, Charlie, on the show, who's already out and gay um, at their high school. But, um, baby, like, Nick struggling with his sexuality, played wonderfully by this actor, Kit Connor. Um, these actors, Kit Connor and Joe Luck, like, all, most of the actors in this, like, seem to be, like, this is their first role. Yeah, um, and I thought, th- and they all did really well. Like, nobody's yeah. acting really bothers me or anything. But, you cast Olivia Coleman as the mother of a teenager who's figuring out their sexuality, and I'm thinking, there's some juice coming. Right. There's no. something coming. I feel duped. I feel like Oprah on the couch with James Fry. <laughs> no, I, I kept thinking, oh, surely this is leading up to a coming out scene where he's, he comes out to Olivia Coleman, his mom, and Olivia Coleman 
like turns to the window and says, now I have a story to tell you about a time in college where I had a wonderful <laughs> thing with a wonderful woman I never saw again. No, she literally just turns to him, and I guess I shouldn't spoil it, but here's a spoiler. Turns to him and says, oh, thank you for telling me. I'm sorry if I ever ma- made you feel like you couldn't tell me that before. That is it. Oh, That's what Olivia okay. Coleman does in the show. Yeah. This was her moment to wipe Michael Stolberg out the fucking room, okay? Yeah, no. To wipe the fucking floor with his call me by your name speech. No, Jennifer Garner and Love, Simon, she should have been vanquished, and yet nothing. <laughs> it is wild that Jennifer Garner's role in Love, Simon was more emotional than Olivia Coleman's role in this. No, it's mathematically, it, was, it, it makes no sense. It was beefier. We giving the beef to Sydney Bristow? I love that we're giving the beef to Sydney Bristow, but come on, give Olivia right. Coleman something to chew. It's right. actually <laughs> wild, because she has like seven lines, but she she has more lines in Heartstopper than she did in The Lost Daughter. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> and, well that was and, a lot of she... trembling and crying. So, yeah. <laughs> and and still it felt lacking. Right. Uh, I needed some trembling and crying here. Right. No, nothing. She was utterly stable. It made no sense. Um, she showed up on set one day. Okay, let let me say this about this show, though. It's basically a Nick Jr. show about boys kissing. I mean... (laughs) Like, it's so... I don't want to say it's anesthetized, because it is an emotional show, but they really simplify and virginify the idea of coming out. Like, it's it's not a sexual show in any way. Not demanding it has to be or whatever, but just know you're getting a very, very sweet version of a high school romance. And additionally, some of the choices made to color in the emotion of the story are pretty fucking juvenile. One, Sweet. There was, you, you, mean, you mean like, you mean like the animated flowers that fly around people, whatever they me, have feelings for someone. Let, wait, excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> let me explain what happens on this show. When two people are in a scene and they make even a light romantic glance at each other. The show is not content with you picking up that they're having a romantic moment. It has to tell you they're in love with each other with literally cartoon birds and butterflies flying in and like ramped up music cues. It's like, it's literally like teaching a one-year-old what being gay is, which great. Glad we have that. But based on the fact that they're high schoolers and based on the fact that we are thinking adults, we we can deduce on our own what's happening without... Uh, SNL Saturday TV funhouse graphics flying across the screen. Eureka's castle held your hand less in scenes <laughs> is what I want to say. But th- this, this critique is only a critique, I think, of the audience um, of our peers who are taking it in. Yeah, Because right. this show, I feel like, is very cute. I mean, clearly Olivia Coleman being in it probably helped it get made. So yeah, maybe that's shout part out, of it. So I shout no out idea. to that. Uh, if this just your kids consuming this, if it's just teenagers who haven't come out, if this is their glee, um, well, maybe I do feel a little sorry for them because um, this show is no glee. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know about the, that. The, the, well, yeah, no, glee was glee. At least gave you some cynicism. Okay, I mean, listen, Gasman Finney, um, uh, gorgeous trans actress, by the way, who plays Elle on the show. Uh, I follow her on Instagram, and she is a bombshell. Uh, she could be giving us, like, Naya Rivera in mm-hmm. Glee, but instead they've got her in, you know, like, glasses looking like um, Anne Hathaway in the beginning of Princess Diaries. 
Uh, right. No. So, uh, like, mm-hmm. if, when you see, when you look at how gorgeous this girl looks IRL, you're going to be shook um, by what, like, how they dress her up on the show. But I'm just like, when a show like this comes around, there's always the, um, there's always the moment where like gay men in their thirties, uh, specifically our age, um, yes, will consume it and then go on this whole. T- thing about how like if only we'd had this when we were kids you know and talk about like how emotional it is to them and how good and perfect it is and how they're watching it how they've watched it six times um in the weekend alone and let me tell you something that is a historical we did have this when we were kids broken hearts club there's tons of movies like this like I mean, 17 yeah what's what's also different is that i mean it's different in the sense that like this is what like eight episodes that are half hour each um it's very easy to digest and it's about you know and it's really well produced i'll say it's that really well yeah. produced it's it's it, you know it, it addresses bisexuality it addresses um trans kids that is great but in in terms of the story that's actually moving um cis gay men um who are being emotional about it it's it's the main love story and you know like we got that shit on like dawson's creek we got it on like Mm -hmm. buffy you know and undressed motherfucker right it had a lot more drama and it had more um it felt just slightly more real you know, like I Googling I am I a homosexual on a BuzzFeed quiz is funny, you know, but like he would have Googled he'd 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 have known he was gay by looking up gay porn before that. Right, right, right. Well it's sort of like you're hearing from that sector of Ted Lasso fans who are constantly saying things like, it's just nice to watch something where everyone's lovely. It's like, okay, kind of, but it also sounds like you're emotionally deranged. Like, I I, I, I don't need it that much. Yeah. Which is to say, I enjoyed the series. Did I cry during the final episode? Yes, I did. But here's what I will say, that there is something just sort of, like, emotionally stunted about, you know, always finding a piece of media like this and being like, I wish I'd had this when I was a kid. And sort of, like, overblowing um, the, you know, obstacles that you faced in high school um, just so you can feel good about um, the fact that you cried watching this Netflix series. Yeah, right. Well, people love announcing that they cried at something. It's like, they think it's like an ultimately, like the, the most humanizing thing you can do online. It's a little bit of a performance. But anyway, I just want to say, I obviously was a bit critical. <laughs> Which is very uh, weird because I used to cry during nothing. And then it turns out I cried during animated movies all the time. And the first time it ever happened to me was watching Wally. Oh, did I cry during Wally? At the, well, I do remember specifically being in the theater during Wally, and at the beginning, maybe when he w- puts the Hello Dolly thing on or whatever, I remember having an emotional reaction, being like, "God, Pixar like literally reaches into your brain and touches the spot where emotions are." Anyway, no. it's it not was, easy it was, to make me cry. I should probably be on Lexapro, but right. Oh yeah, I, I was gonna say I I do really like this show, and I think it's fun to watch. Also, it's like candy; it slips by. It is also the most cyan show in history. The coloring on this show is just, they took crepas or colored pencils and made it the most Easter colored show of all time. So like even just aesthetically, you're in a real happy bunny like place. Now we must get into the real world, New Orleans homecoming. Okay. So this was our gay youth. Okay. Yeah. The year was 2000. Yeah. Danny Roberts in New Orleans uh, with his blurred out boyfriend in the military. 
was that that is what like made my like heart um race as a kid well one nobody was more abercrombie looking than danny from this season so he was a very specific type of very cute model smile and also just like he was sort of like delicately nice he wasn't just he, he didn't actually have like a ton of like like personality there was almost like a no, he wasn't. There was, a, there was a sense that he was introverted. That's what it was. And yes. he was not like any other gay character that we'd had on MTV before. Like, I'm thinking of Dan from Miami. Right. Who was who just was like in like, your he face. Was, he was a yeah. cunt. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, to, to, I mean, to put it, but like, he, he was a cunt. And he, like, he, and he talked at 500 <laughs> miles per hour. Yeah. Yeah. And like basically ripped Melissa to shreds over opening up his mail. Right. Um, but And was generally like the comic relief in the house, too, whereas Danny was not like that. But what's interesting is, so this is a Paramount Plus show that reunites the New Orleans cast of The Real World. Every other cast member, even Tokyo, who is formerly David from New Orleans, as he calls himself now, their personalities came right back to me. Like Kelly, who's married to Scott Wolf. I'm like, wow, you are the exact same. It was actually, in a way, validating for the art form of reality TV because they reminded me of my other impressions of them. Mm. Melissa was exactly the same. She was still hilarious and still withering and hilarious and also there there was a sense of growth with all of them too in the sense that like melissa is yes very hilarious and like righteous like like you said but she's also taken in the fact that she doesn't feel like she did enough to represent herself like as a brown girl on television in 2000 and obviously she understands you know like um you know, like race and society, like a lot more than like some of the other gas members. So like she, she's funny, but she also feels like relevant. Um, yeah. And like current in the same way that she did in 2002. Also, I mean, I think she is acutely aware of the fact that Julie on the season, who is this religious, uh, Mormon girl whose whole, like, it was like the season was like a Bildungsroman for her. Like we were seeing Julie really get acquainted with the real world. Like she, she was like the, the star player, like the, mm-hmm. you know, the virgin. And then it was basically someone like Melissa's job to give her the education. So in a way she was a tool to uh, elevate the character of mm-hmm. Julie. And I think this Man, is she exhausting. Se- you know, oh, I mean, we'll get into <laughs> that in a second, but like, but like, I think Melissa realized she's like, I'm not going to do this show if I'm just going to be a tool to advance this other character. And now she's like, I think fully, you know, her, her own character, not just somebody mm-hmm. who's there to, you know, pick at the idiocy of somebody else. But my God, Julie, who looks exactly the same, most of them look exactly the same, was just a drunk mess, a horny mess. And she's like married to some guy at home. I was shocked at how quickly she went back to being a classic real world cast member. Yeah, and also just like a villain. Yeah, like right, just like she was. She was propped up in this way in two thousand. Now she comes back on the show and is very much like making her discomfort at being like white, and then also like a terrorist to everybody during the show and after it, like their problem. Because she wasn't just awful to them on the show. Like, like, like they revealed that like she like fucked up bags for them after the show too. Like, like fucking up, like saying bad shit about her other cast members to like for speaking gigs and shit like that and what it also reminded me of the fact is that these were celebrities 
Oh my god! When yes. like, no, and maybe if I was in college, in, if I was in college when these real world casts were on TV and they came to my college, I would absolutely drop everything to go see them. I remember when I first moved to New York and they were shooting like back to Brooklyn, like the they were shooting the Williamsburg season. Um, we went crazy when we saw like them filming uh, in Union Square. You know, and like that was that was 2007 still, you know. And for me, I think that um, probably because MTV was like created its own ecosystem where, you know, like it's it was sort of like a precursor to Instagram and Snapchat, you know, where like everybody can become a celebrity now. Right. And like in reality TV stars are become less celebrities now unless you're like, you know, the cast of Selling Sunset or something, you know, on like a huge global um you know, scale reality show star because like there's so much reality. Like it's the the celebrity is diluted now. Um, if you're a Real Housewife or you're on a Netflix show, like then you become huge. But mm. MTV, I would sort of compare to like an Instagram or a Snapchat because MTV created its own reality, basically yeah. in the sense that they were celebrities, but they were also on every MTV show. Um, they would appear like on like spring break or they'd appear on TRL. And it's sort of like, if you were famous on MTV, you were famous in the real world as well, but you were mostly just mega famous to the audience that watched MTV every day. It does that make sense? Like they were our biggest celebrities. Yeah. They gave you plenty of opportunities to continue your fame elsewhere on the network. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that they were the biggest people to us the way that like, you know, some someone's like favorite like Instagram influencer is like the biggest celebrity to that. Right, right, right. Um, I I want to say also about Danny from New Orleans on this season. He's the one person who doesn't remind me of the person he was on the show before, and it's it's interesting to see because I don't think you often get a serious glimpse of someone after they've experienced you know the rush of being on a reality show and the rush of fame when they aren't prepared for it. The trauma he went through is on his face. You can see yeah. it was it was not easy. That also, it's like when we had Peter Page from Queer's Folk here, the original Queer's Folk here, I said to him, I was like, man, so I bet people come up to you every day and talk about, tell you harrowing stories of their queer, whatever, teenage years. And he goes, that happens to me every day. That is so fucking much for somebody to have to deal with. And Danny yeah. clearly was one, I think he's thankful that he was, um, could be, you know, a beacon of hope and uh, for, for all these viewers. But at the same time, that is so much to bear. He talked about how he became a hermit for years and years. I was actually surprised to hear that his relationship with this Paul guy from the military went on for years after the show. I didn't remember hearing that at the time. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I actually, I would have, wouldn't have been shocked if they broke up like sort of immediately after the show. Right. But, yeah. Um, also the trauma of like being an out gay man on television but also still essentially in the closet because your partner can't be publicly out right and um, now and you're a different person now too because like you've had the trauma of people coming out up to you um and then you've also had that relationship that was basically like how people knew you on tv and also like not to be crass about it but it's also like imagine being like a fucking gay um, person on the real world and having to live in the shadow of Pedro. No, right. Uh, I mean, also, it, it, the show does a really good job of pointing out that if you were like an out gay celebrity in 2000, I mean, you were in 
a, a league by yourself. There just weren't that many new celebrities who were out and gay. You know, there were kind of like established celebrities who could who could begin to come out, you know, in, in the vein of an Ellen, et cetera. But there weren't many, you know, it, it was still like pre the era where someone like Perez Hilton would want to out you, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just, there, there was not like a, a textbook about how to be an out young gay celebrity, uh, let alone... Let, let alone somebody who was just like an average citizen for most of his life up to that point. I mean, and that gets us to White Hot, the rise and fall of Abercrombie and Fitch, uh, which basically describes that era where you still had no idea that there were like other gay people like you in your small town. Like, you know, like you, you that was still sort of the era of big gay, like pre AOL, um, pre, you know, like gay people being everywhere that you could you could still feel like maybe i'm the only gay person in my high school right which no, is absolutely could, not fucking true anyway r- completely no you I, I mean i think of i guess this would have been a little bit post the era of aim but when i was in college from 2004 to 2008 i remember going back to my hometown and being like Oh, like when things like a Starbucks would appear or an H&M would appear and suddenly gay people were working there. It's like that that was like the closest thing I had to social media then like, oh, there are other gay people here and they've found this place where they can work and sort of be gay and, and, and look gay, you know. And the idea that, you know, we just hadn't gotten into conversations about struggling with your sexuality, um, even sort of. In the way that, you know, like getting back to Heartstopper, the character Nick Nelson, realizing it, it actually was really sweet to see in that show um, a character coming to the conclusion that they were bisexual uh, yeah, instead right. of just like, oh, like I'm going to like pretend that I like girls and then just be, you know, anyway, it was it was nice to see that um, because it reminds you of the fact that like everybody yeah, deals with their sexuality um, in their adolescence. And I think that during this period of our like high school lives, like in your brain, you're just thinking, I'm gay and I don't want other people to find this out, right? At no point did I in my mind think like, oh, by the way, there's another classmate who um, maybe isn't gay, but is dealing with the fact that like they're attracted to their best friend. And what does that mean? You know, like there's no concept of the fact that like there's other people going through the same struggles that you were going through in high school through the same degree, a lesser degree, um, a stronger degree. And I think the documentary sort of gets into that in the sense that like um, and the Amber Crombie ads were basically like light gay porn, but no one noticed that they were light gay porn because it was selling this aspirational frat shirtless white bro running around like either naked or just in jeans which looking at it now anybody would look at that now and be like this shit is gay right back then it looked like it's just like oh this is how straight people want to be and they get into the fact that the main photographer for abercrombie was not only gay but like this sort of lech who is uh problematic with models they get into that i mean watch the documentary but um What's interesting is I think people forget, and I, this occurred to me, or I was told to me when I interviewed Raja from Drag Race years ago, mm-hmm. she said that like a reason that Drag Race changed things in a way was not only did it repopularize drag, but it sort of officially led gay people out of the Aberzombie era of uh, 
uh, of, of their place in pop culture. What happened mm-hmm. is like like gay people became obsessed with preppiness. That became like mm-hmm. the gay look. And I think Abercrombie was a big part of centralizing that, you know. And uh, so now I look at those pictures and I think, wow, it really looks like, I mean, to be frank, all the porn I consumed when I was like 17 or 18. Yeah, I mean, that is the direct, like, Abercrombie is the direct pipeline of Sean Cody. Right, yes. You know, and um, it's funny now because, like, if you go to SeanCody.com now, it's it doesn't even look like the models that you remember from years ago. You know, it's like the, the, the preppy aesthetic is sort of gone from it. Uh, well, again, I, I remember very vividly in about 2005, there was an entire genre of porn that I would describe as skater. Like everybody, had, <laughs> <laughs> there would be you. You had to wear ba- like you started with Vans on. That's what that was the rule. Um, but I want to say about Abercrombie. I actually, what's interesting is, as much as it was the cool brand, you know, around the time when that LFO song came out, I never shopped at Abercrombie. But mind you, I was sort of like unaware of fashion. I, I, I think I got into Express for Men eventually. I wanted to look like the gayest cast member on Whose Line Is It Anyway? And nothing's changed. Right. <laughs> I'm, st- I'm, st- I'm still wearing my lilac dress shirt tucked into like cerulean jeans. Uh, what's weird about the aspirational nature of that is I there was the, there's this one black woman in the documentary who discusses being a part of like the class action lawsuit. Um and she talks about, you know, the being at school um which she transferred to a new school in D.C. is like the school that like Chelsea Clinton and all of uh, like the Obamas and people Obama's kids went to. Um, about that's where she discovered Amber Crombie, you know. And her she just describes conversations with her mom where her mom like once the class action suit like started happening and when she was fired for being black, you know, her mom was like, "That's what I always assumed this was," you know. But like when you're a kid, you just take into account like what other people are doing, and it's like, yeah. When I right. was at a public yeah, school, no context. Yeah. When I was at a public school in Milwaukee that was all black, I wanted to wear FUBU. You know, because that's what the kids were wearing, you know, like FUBU, Nautica, Tommy Hilfiger, you know, like I was around black kids. I wanted to wear what the cool kids were wearing. Uh, And then when I was transferred to, you know, I when I went to an all boys high school in Milwaukee, um, I would say that's sort of where that sort of like preppy Sean Cody aesthetic sort of started for me and why I would even start to be attracted to that in that period, because that's when you see the Amber Crombie shit and it's all there. And it's, it's weird. I think that like, if I had never gone to that school, like would that have ever happened to me, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. And it's not like I shopped at Amber Crombie because I was not Amber Crombie size in high school, but like you would still walk past it and feel this like sensation of like, maybe going in once or twice and like half perusing being like, Oh, would I fit this? Can I do this? Or just cause you just want it to be like a weird part of it. But we well, also that show that, that store did such a good job of cultivating intrigue as they point out in the documentary, it was the one store that ever put up Brown shutters outside. So you couldn't see in it, but they had mm. posters of models on the outside and occasionally real life models on the outside to sort of let you know, this is a whole world and not everyone's invited, but I mean, I guess you could take a walk through and maybe see if, you know, you're cool enough to hang, basically. Like, it was just, there, w- there was an allure there. And also, of course, you could hear the store and also mm-hmm. smell the store. So it, it just had its own sort of Shangri-La vibe. But it's also just sort of, 
I mean, it's sort of Met Gala-esque, right? In the sense of like creating this intrigue of this place that you can't get into and then you're still obsessed with it. But then ultimately, is it that cool? Because it's like, that seemed like the in place, you know, and then these hot guys out there. Um, it's like, what's going on inside this, right? And then when you become like an older gay person, you're sort of like, those people wouldn't even make it um, past like the bouncer in like, a hot queer New York nightclub. But it's but it's like the the intrigue they cultivated was very suburban. It was very like here's here's the idea of a popular person in your school or college that you can kind of replicate that you can kind of buy into, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a Hollywood glamour. It was it was uh, very regional, shall we say. But very Aryan. Oh, you know? oh, I mean, oh my God! It's the whitest thing ever. Yeah. I mean, literally, that I remember. You would go to any other store in the mall, and you would see people who were, weren't, you know, totally white. Whereas Abercrombie, as I remember it, might have had one person of color in it, and then everybody else looked like they were, you know, a cast member on the OC. <laughs> when we're back, it's keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Lewis, what's your Keep It this week? Okay, I'm going to bring up some Met Gala stuff that we ashamedly forgot. Uh, and you're going to be mad at me for the name I'm about to say. But let's talk about what happened with Jared Leto at the Met Gala, which is to say everybody thought he was this other guy named Frederick, some model, who was giving a very um, I've heard of Bjork costume. <laughs> it's this shocking kind of black swan colored it's pointy. I can't even describe it. Go and look it up. But everybody thought it was Jared Leto. And then lo and behold, seconds later, the real Jared Leto showed up looking more traditionally Jared Leto-like um, with a designer looking exactly the same. And I just want to say already that is too much discussion about Jared Leto and being confused by Jared Leto. Because guess what? I was watching the E! red carpet treatment of the Met Gala. And I heard Karamo live on air say that's Jared Leto. And he was wrong about this man about this Frederick guy and uh Karamo bad at his job I'm shocked also man also wait also Karamo was wearing a wave cap yes and he is bald <laughs> you're like a, what, what, you're like what, a detective what, what, I, I'm just I it's it it's it seemed like he was trying to throw off Perot okay <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that was confusing. I don't know how everybody got this all so wrong. The guy, I guess, does look like Jared Leto, but I mean, you've been on red carpets before. They usually they yell the, the person's name. Yeah, before you go out there and uh, uh, befuddle the press like this. It was really, really strange. And imagine and shouting also- Jared Leto's name and um, him not immediately responding. If we say right. it three times, he might show up on this podcast. Right. Don't don't tempt him. Don't tempt him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, it, it's one of those things where I usually am excited for the Met Gala until I realize it's going to enable Jared Leto, and then my emoji smile fades to a flat line. You know what I'm saying? Secondly, Emma Stone came to the Met Gala, which I did not expect her to. I did not expect to see Emma Stone last night. And she went with boring. It's this uh, sort of off-white, meh, mostly white, lightly flapper fringe on the end of the dress, but it looks like something a girl would wear to her first communion or something. And I need Emma Stone to evolve to not a camp place, but to an adult commanding industry figure place. 
She needs mm. to not dress ingenue is what I'm saying. Uh, I'm done with the Easy A era. I did watch that movie again recently and it's, it's still a little childish for me. I didn't love it. She was good in it. Mm. But I would love Emma Stone to graduate. That's still your worst to, You think so? I just, Hating Easy It doesn't a. do anything for me. I think the parents are weird in it too. Lots of weird choices in that movie. Anyway. Do you like Crazy she, Stupid Love? Uh, I like the scene where she references, she does an impression of Lauren Bacall in the High Point commercials. Otherwise, no. Can I say, by the way, Side note, I'm, I was in London this past weekend, and uh, I met up with a friend that I've known from Instagram for years, uh, Johnny, uh, and he recently discovered Keep It, um, but referenced the fact that um, he also recently discovered the Lauren Bacall coffee ads because you referenced them and like oh, didn't yeah. know them before and brought up the fact that... Um, that scene in Crazy Stupid Love must be so weird for people who don't know the reference. No, because they don't really explain it from what I they remember don't. either. And there's, a, I mean, I brought this up before. I'll be quick. If you haven't seen these Lauren Bacall commercials where she's advertising decaffeinated coffee called High Point <laughs> that she says, like High Point, like she's, it's, the, it's the angriest <laughs> delivery ever. I would rarely call, I would, I would rarely call, I would rarely call anything camp. This is certainly campy. Certainly. Mm -hmm. But um, I've also discovered decaffeinated coffee later in life. I enjoy it. I just like the taste of coffee, so decaf I, yeah, speaks to me. I, when I want coffee at night, I drink a decaf now. And one of these commercials begins with Lauren Bacall saying, my favorite time of day is night, which sounds like <laughs> you know something the son of Sam writes in a note to you or something. Bram Stoker's Lauren Bacall. <laughs> I, I'd watch it. Um, anyway, so Emma Stone, feel free to graduate to like a, a striking you know, Azealia Banks-like pantsuit or something next time. You're not going to bring up Amy Schumer looking like she was in The Matrix? Uh, yeah, Amy Schumer underwhelmed too. But at the same time, like, this isn't an event where I would expect her to be like aces or anything, you know? She always seems like she's at these events under duress, and yet she continues to show up. Right. I just want to say, I thought Amy Schumer did an awesome job at the Oscars, and people were so dismissive of the host of that telecast. So I just want to... Give a shout out to Amy Schumer. Really landing jokes. Every joke people were screaming at. And I feel like she didn't get the credit for it. Moving on. All right. I'm, I'm proud of you taking a pro Amy Schumer stance <laughs> on this podcast. We've, we, we've had highs and lows with Amy on this show. But good. You know. Remember when um, she had that Keep It knockoff on Spotify the year we debuted? Honestly? No. <laughs> Neither does she probably. <laughs> anyway. My Keep It This Week is a bit more serious. My Keep It goes to the entire circus that is the Johnny Depp and Amber oh Heard trial. I am so upset every time I see anything about it online. And it actually has nothing to do with either of them or the very horrific details to come out of this trial. Um... My keep it goes to the way that people are treating this like it is the Patriots versus the Broncos. Totally. It's like this is it's it's gross all around. And it is so weird how people are acting like like it's a football game. Like like you have to choose sides like one side is winning. One side is losing. They're keeping score. I mean, it is this is these are human beings. Uh, and it's also like a really sick situation. And the way people are sort of deriving entertainment from it is 
it's just sort of vile to me. Like, I don't know if you saw that one video of like a Starbucks where um, customers were being asked at a drive-thru um, who they supported, Johnny or Amber, and then like people cheering, like another one for Johnny. I'm like, oh, now, now I get it. Now I get how, um, you know, people sat in um, coliseums and watched um, gladiators battle <laughs> to the death. No, I can't remember an acrimonious ex's trial in recent memory that compares to this for a couple of reasons. One, the details are utterly insane. And it, 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 going both ways, like reading texts from Johnny Depp to Paul Bettany are crazy. Amber Heard, but we don't know what her story is. If there are things being fabricated, I'm not here to say one way or another which way I want it to go, as you just said. But also, the intensity of Johnny Depp fans is unparalleled. It is truly up there with the Michael Jacksons, with the birds outside the courthouse thing. There's something about him where people believe necessarily that there is a core of utter excellence that must be defended. And it's like, I too have enjoyed whatever, Sweeney Todd. I enjoyed Finding Neverland. I do not connect with Johnny Depp. I don't know what what he did ever, I mean, is it because of Pirates of the Caribbean that people think I have to, like, my, my, my happiness depends on Johnny Depp's, on justice for Johnny Depp. And it's extremely strange to behold. That is, that is such a good point. I would say that Johnny Depp has never really had this hold on me, like, never had this chokehold on me the way that he has on his fans. And I get it with Michael Jackson. You right. Know, okay. Like the music, there's no, the music, there's no the comparison. Yeah. Right. Undeniable. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he looked really good in a crop top in a Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, Cry Baby is a fantastic film. So is Ed Donnie Wood, Brasco. Yeah. But uh-huh. also, there is the existence of Secret Window, Dark Shadows, The Tourist. Rum Diary, where he met Amber Heard. Yeah. You know, like. There's, I mean, yes, for every Edward Scissorhands, there are at least, like, two very abysmal movies within the past, like, decade and a half, two decades. Um, and I'm including every Pirates of the Caribbean movie after the second one. Um, in in that which he made, ab- like, 11 figures apiece. Yeah. <laughs> that are abysmal. Um, so I can't even really defend the um, the status as, you know, like like an actor as well yeah um anyway the the entire theme is just very weird um and it, 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 it just reveals like the worst about the humanity um i mean do you remember I, did you I, hear I, I, the like story about the how Bowl. did you hear about how somebody rushed into the courtroom with some makeup packet that would prove that somebody on amber heard's side was lying about something anyway the fans are extreme and they're at the courthouse in virginia uh and I hope we never. Is this have how Loving versus like this Virginia again. was? That's <laughs> Ruth Nega is standing by, smiling at a sink <laughs> on Team Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? The only exes I ever want to see battling in court are Catherine Zeta Jones and George Clooney in Intolerable Cruelty. Oh, duh. Please. Ugh. Remember when we used to give Catherine Zeta Jones roles like that? What a good time for us. Now all she does is sew pillows for her home line. Right. I guess in a way, I'm sort of grateful that we have the glamour of acrimony. Like just, you know, 
it's been so long since we've had a Zsa Gabor or an Elizabeth Taylor or whatever, Liza Minnelli. Like there, there was something quaint about the tabloidization of a relationship falling apart. But also, this is utterly toxic. So I don't mean to glamorize. I don't, I don't mean to revel in the glamour at, at, anymore. Yeah. Um, if you want to revel in acrimony, Lewis, I mean, Tyler Perry's 2018 psychological thriller starring Taraji P. Henson is right there. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll load that up on Tubi or wherever it's playing. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to assign you that. And I'm going to assign you that when we do Tyler Perry blind spots on this show. Oh my god! <laughs> Why did I get harried too from watching Tyler Perry movies? Anyway, and if you want a rundown of the full Johnny Depp Amber Heard story, the cut has a really awesome and comprehensive. Uh, analysis rundown of the whole thing. So go to that. But as I may remind you, um, it is not Sunday and Johnny Depp fans should stop acting, you know, like the um, Christians in a town where um, a couple of Episcopalians just moved in. Okay. (laughs) You know, like there are no sides to be taken. Right. You you don't win based on whatever happens. Yeah. Yeah. You... (laughs) Um... But Lewis and I can win based on whatever happens. So Lewis is Team Johnny, and I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Go get him, Don Juan DeMarco. <laughs> uh, that's our show. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Fertel. Our editor is Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for our production support every week. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.